Well, brethren, let's go ahead and get started this morning. Uh, if you could turn with me in your Bibles, please, to our text, 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we will be beginning at verse 10b, as in boy, and uh, going down to verse 22. I've only heard A and B. I haven't never heard of a C part of a verse. But That's right, D, E. <laughs> Before we look together at this passage of Scripture, let's once again bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you once again for this day you've given to us, this Lord's Day. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together and to sing praises to you and to worship you and to read your word and to hear it spoken. And Lord, we pray that especially during this hour that you would guide and direct our time together. We understand that the passage before us is a very difficult one in many ways, and yet at the same time, we understand that it is very profitable, as you've said in your word, that all scripture is given by inspiration, and it's profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so, Lord, we pray that you would accomplish your purpose in each one of our hearts as we look together at this passage of scripture and we would ask all of these things in Jesus name and for his sake amen well in our study of the second epistle of Peter we come this morning to the latter part of chapter 2 beginning at that passage where we left off last Sunday morning which was the middle of verse 10 or 10b And our text will take us down again to the end of verse 22. A couple of weeks ago, as the study began in uh, the beginning of chapter 2, Peter reminded those to whom he was writing of the certain fact that false teachers were indeed going to uh, rise up among them. And just as they had in the past, they would seek to introduce destructive heresies. Uh, They were intent upon maligning the way of the truth and they would seek to exploit the people of God with false words. And they do all that for their own benefit and for their own gain. In our study last week, we were reminded of the certain divine judgment that not only awaits the ungodly in general, but especially those who distort what God has said in his word with the intent of leading people astray. So that's basically where we are up to this point. Now, as we come to our text this morning, rather than applying the brakes and slowing down, the Apostle Peter here is actually going to step on the accelerator uh, by pointing out in very clear, descriptive terms three things that we as the people of God are to be very clear of and that we are to know as it relates to these false teachers. As we look here at our text this morning, we're going to note, first of all, that Peter describes the depraved nature of these false teachers, and that's going to be found in verses 10b down through the end of verse 16. Secondly, we're going to note that he points out the deceptive methods of these false teachers, and that's found in verses 17 through 19. And then thirdly and finally, Peter is going to remind these people of the dreadful state of these false teachers. And so then let us then from our text this morning consider together the depraved nature, the deceptive methods, and then finally the dreadful state of these false teachers. 
So let's begin by looking at the depraved nature of these false teachers. Peter begins, Peter writes beginning in the middle of verse 10, these words. He says, daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a moot donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of a prophet. This is the description that the Apostle Peter gives concerning the depraved nature of these false teachers. It is very obvious from the text that there's a lot that he has to say concerning this matter. So let's uh, dive right in and examine each characteristic as it's given here. And he lists seven of them. The first trait that he points out is that these false teachers, according to the NASV, are daring. They're daring. Or the literal translation there is that they are reckless. So that is the first point. These false teachers are reckless. This is the only place in Scripture where this particular Greek word is found, and it literally means darers or reckless ones. It has been translated using various terms, including daring. If you have the King James Version, it's translated presumptuous. It's been translated bold, and it's been translated reckless. In other words, this term speaks of those who defy God in order to exalt themselves, regardless of the consequences, even though they themselves are very much aware of what those consequences are going to be. One commentator defines such a person as, quote, he who has the audacity to defy the will of God as it is known to him. A perfect example of this kind of brazen behavior is found by a character over in Daniel chapter 5, where we find the account recorded there of Belshazzar's great feast. And you might remember that uh, at the beginning of that chapter, we are told that King Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple that was at Jerusalem. And so, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And the word of God tells us that then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. 
They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And then we're all very, very much familiar with what happens next, that as they were partying, as they were reveling, drinking out of these utensils that came from the temple there in Jerusalem, uh, verses 5 and 6, Daniel writes, says, Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Obviously, this was a very disturbing, very terrifying thing that Belshazzar and those who were around him saw. Well, of course, he desired to know what the message was that was being written by this hand that was on the wall. And so eventually, the text tells us that Daniel is brought before the king for the purpose of interpreting the writing on the wall. And he begins his address to Belshazzar by reminding of the greatness of his own father, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he also reminded him of the dire consequences that fell upon his father by the hand of God when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up in pride. Daniel said that when the king's heart was lifted up, that God deposed him from his royal throne and that his glory was taken from him. He reminds him of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was then driven from mankind and made to live like and among the beasts of the field, where he spent many years eating grass like the cattle, and his body was drenched in the dew of heaven. He reminded him that his father's former glory was not returned to him until he was brought to the place where he recognized that the Most High God rules over the realm of men, and that it is he who exalts over that realm whomsoever he wishes. So that's basically the context of what he is about to say and the point that I want to make. So then Daniel said to Belshazzar, after saying all that, in light of this, Daniel says to him, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, which do not hear, and which do not understand. And then he says, But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. This is the first defining characteristic of these false teachers that Peter is speaking about here in 2 Peter chapter 2. They exalt themselves, as Peter said, and as was characteristic in, in the life and in the manifestation of Belshazzar, they have exalted themselves against the Lord of heaven, knowing perfectly well who this God is and the consequences that are going to most certainly befall them because of their defiant actions. They know what God has said. They know the judgment that is going to be brought down upon them because of their sin, 
yet they defiantly go ahead and do it anyway. That's exactly what this term means, to dare. And so that's the first one. The, these people, Peter says, uh, dare. They are reckless. Or they are literally, again, reckless ones. Secondly, I want us to note from our text, not only are these people reckless, but these false teachers, Peter says, are also self-pleasing. They are self-pleasing. Most translations here, including the NASB, use the term self-willed. The Greek word that Peter uses to describe these people is made up of two root words. The first one is the word autos, which means self. And the second word is hedomei, which means to please. This is the same word from which we get the English word hedonism, which is the belief that pleasure or happiness is the soul or the chief good in life. That's basically the idea behind this word self-willed or self-pleasing. And so the word literally means to please oneself or one who is self-pleasing. It denotes an arrogant self-interest that asserts its own will without any regard whatsoever to other people and how they might be affected. In other words, these false teachers, Peter says, are men who stubbornly insist on doing that which pleases themselves. They are so completely obsessed with their own desires that no one or nothing else can be taken into consideration. Themselves and their interests is all that matters. These men are not so much crowd pleasers as they are self pleasers and they will let nothing stand in their way in order to achieve their own self gratification. This was one of the characteristics that Paul identified to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5, where he warned Timothy of those men who were lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, that they had a form of godliness, but that they denied the power thereof. And so Paul continues as he mentions this to Timothy, he says to him, from such individuals, turn away from them, have nothing to do with these individuals. And so not only then are these false teachers reckless, and not only are they self-pleasing, but let's note thirdly from our text that these false teachers are arrogant. They're arrogant. Peter continues by pointing out the fact that their recklessness and self-pleasing attitude will manifest itself outwardly in their disrespect and in their disdain for those in positions of authority and power. He says, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. In other words, these false teachers actively seek to tear down others in order to try to build up themselves. And as a result of this, they show no respect whatsoever for authority, and they are not afraid to attack and defame those who are in high positions over them. Peter says that they do not tremble when they do this. 
These evil men are so brazen that they are not afraid and they don't even experience a quiver when he says they revile angelic majesties. The word that Peter uses here that is translated revile is the word blasphemio from which we get the English word blaspheme. The word means to hurt or to harm or to injure by declaring one's thoughts. It is the act of speaking with the intent of defaming or injuring the reputation of somebody else. And this particular word is an appropriate word in that these evil men do not limit their slanderous speech toward other men, but they go so far, they dare to go so far as to speak evil of those things that are sacred and holy. This action is a clear indicator of the ignorance of these men. The word that Peter uses here is the word doxa, which literally means an appearance commanding respect. It means magnificence. It means excellence. Or it means the manifestation of glory. And it has been translated here as glorious ones. Other translations translate it supernatural beings. Others refer to them as celestial beings. Others simply say dignities. But here in the NASV, the wording that's used is angelic majesties. To help us to understand a little bit better about what the Apostle Peter is saying here, let's examine a very similar statement over in the book of Jude. If you could turn two or three pages over, maybe four or five, depending on the size of your Bible, but uh, over in Jude, uh, Jude appears in every way to be speaking about this very same subject. And it's helpful if we compare what Jude has to say with what the Apostle Peter is saying here. Jude writes in verses 8 through 10 these words. He says, In the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Again, there that Greek word is used, doxa. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. It would appear from both of these passages that these false teachers who were mere men went so far as to revile or blaspheme angels who possess greater, as Peter says, might and power than they do. Yet they sought to diminish even them in an attempt to exalt their own selves. Yet how do the angels respond to these bold, slanderous statements made by these false teachers against them? Well, Peter says that they do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. And here the example that's given uh, by Jude reveals to us that Michael the archangel refused to bring a railing accusation or a railing judgment against Satan in his dispute with him over the body of Moses. Instead, he simply turned the matter over to the Lord, the sovereign judge of all, and he said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. 
And it appears from a text here in Jude that once, uh, once Michael appeared to the, uh, appealed to the Lord, it appears that that ended the dispute that he had with Satan. And so we can conclude from this example that from their exalted position, the holy angels do not disrespect and bring railing accusations against even their fallen counterparts, let alone these false teachers who are habitually bringing false judgments against them. Yet these evil men that Peter is speaking of by stark contrast to the angels and to Michael here in particular are so brazen, reckless, and proud that they dared to do and say what even Michael refused to do and say. John Calvin, in commenting on this statement, says that the false teachers show, quote, their rash arrogance because they dared to assume more liberty than even the angels. And so such arrogance as this exercised by these false teachers demonstrate that they are like, quote, unreasoning animals. In other words, their actions are similar to that of beasts, which possess no capability of reason Rather, they function solely on self-indulgence and thoughtless passion. For many of them, their primary role in the ecological system is to be captured and killed, and the result of that is to provide food for others in the food chain. Peter says, but these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. These spiritual pretenders, these hypocrites, who present themselves as genuine teachers of the truth, exhibit an animal-like ignorance. Peter says, reviling where they have no knowledge. These men ridicule divine truth and heavenly authority, including those things that they do not even know and do not even understand. Yet in spite of that, they are intent upon ridiculing them. Matthew Henry rightly notes regarding this point that men under the power of sin are so far from observing divine revelation that they do not exercise reason nor act according to the direction thereof. He continues by saying that they walk by sight and not by faith and judge of things according to their senses. As these represent things pleasant and agreeable, so they must be approved and esteemed. Brute creatures follow the instinct of their sensitive appetite and sinful man follows the inclination of his carnal mind. These refuse to employ the understanding and reason that God has given to them, and so are ignorant of what they might and ought to know. <clears throat> and as a result, these false teachers will not escape the coming wrath of God, Peter says. Over in chapter 3, Peter reminds his readers that the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment, and destruction of ungodly men. He speaks here of the coming day of the Lord, 
that day in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all of its works are going to be burned up. He says, when this day comes and the fire of God consumes the entire world with all of its creatures, these false teachers, Peter says, will also be destroyed. Jude adds that this instinctive evil of false teachers programs them to be destroyed. He says this back in Jude 10. He says, these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these they are destroyed. These enemies of God who have intentionally distorted the truth will all suffer eternal punishment in the lake of fire. John speaks of this reality over in Revelation 20 and verse 10, where he says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. For all eternity, false teachers will endure the wrath of God, John says, in the lake of fire. There they will suffer, as Peter says, wrong as the wages of doing wrong. The word suffering wrong literally means to be damaged or it means to be injured. Those who have dedicated themselves to the propagation of false doctrine and who seek to lead people astray will throughout eternity be punished for their transgressions. Paul wrote in Galatians 6 and verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. But not only then are these false teachers reckless, not only are they self-pleasing and arrogant, but Peter goes on to say that these false teachers are also unashamed. They are unashamed. The false teachers of whom Peter speaks were so consumed with their sin that they openly and unapologetically reveled in it. He says of them that they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. As a general rule, and we know this to be true, sinners tend to practice their sin under the cover of darkness, don't they? And even pagan Roman society at the time of Peter writing this epistle, they tolerated sinful revelry as long as it was practiced in a discreet manner. Public displays of debauchery were considered to be inappropriate at the time, even by unbelieving Romans. But this was not the case with these false teachers of whom Peter was referring to here. In fact, their behavior was quite the opposite. He says that they considered it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. And as a result, Peter likened these wicked men to stains and blemishes, terms that bring to mind the thought of malignant sores, scabs, filthy spots and disease, they reveled in their deceptions. They openly and without shame enjoyed the fruit of their sin. And they enjoyed it not only out in the world, but also it's very evident here from the text that they reveled in it within the church as well. 
He says that they revel in their deceptions as they carouse with you. The word carouse means to eat together or to entertain together as one would eat a meal with another person or another group of people publicly. The statement is again likely referring to the same love feasts that Jude refers to over in verse 12 of Jude, where he says concerning these false teachers, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Now it was common back in the first century that a common meal called a love feast many times was conducted just prior to the celebration of the Lord's table. The people of God would gather together, uh, kind of like a potluck-like dinner maybe. Uh, They would enjoy a time of feasting together, and they would celebrate the Lord's table either before or afterwards. And by pretending to have an interest in the saving work of Christ, these men sought to convince others in the church that they rightfully deserved a place at the table. The fact of the matter was that they posed a great danger, and they were a polluting influence whenever they assembled with the people of God. They openly and wantonly reveled in their sin, and they did so without an ounce of shame. But not only are these people unashamed, Peter says, But fifthly, he says that these are lustful people. They are lustful. Peter says that they have, quote, eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. The literal Greek term here, term or phrase is continually having eyes full of an adulteress, which means that these false teachers desired every woman that they saw including in the church, viewing all of them as a potential adulteress. Their eyes served as constant instruments of lust. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 23, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? Being full of adultery indicates to us just how completely their corrupt passions had come to occupy their minds. They were ever on the lookout for an adulterous woman. Literally, these evil men were controlled by their lust. But then note with me sixthly then, not only are they unashamed, lustful, but they sixthly, they are also seductive. They are seductive. Peter says that they go about enticing unstable souls. Peter goes on to say that even though they are menacing predators, these false teachers, amazingly enough, still have a following within the church. You look at all of these characteristics of these men. The strange thing is that there were still some in the church that were following after them. And that's because they preyed upon the spiritually weak. They convinced them to believe false doctrine and enticed them to embrace their deceptive lifestyles. 
The word enticing here literally means to catch with bait. I'm quite confident that in a group this size, we have some fishermen among us or some people who like to fish. You know all about this. They use these tactics to trick the spiritually immature, the undiscerning, or unbelieving victims into believing a lie. Those who are unstable are those with very little or no foundation in the truth of God's word. They lack a firmness in the faith and discipline necessary for godliness, and as a result are more susceptible to be unsettled by the false teaching and scandalous conduct of these crafty deceivers. They are ill-equipped to resist the allurements and as a result wind up being led astray into sin because their feet are not firmly planted in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 4 and verses 4 through 16, Peter, or Paul rather, contrasts unstable souls with those who are, who are being equipped with the stabilizing truth of the word of God as those who are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual causes the growth of the body for the building of itself up in love. And so, brethren, the only sure defense against the, 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 the seductive tactics of the false teachers was to possess a firm foundation based upon the word of God. Note with me then, seventhly, Peter says that these men are greedy. They are greedy. He says they have a heart trained in greed. These false teachers of Peter's day were motivated by the accumulation of wealth. He says that their heart was trained. The word used here is gymnazo, from which we get the English word gymnasium. And it means to exercise bodily and describes an athlete that spends a lot of time training in the gym. Figuratively, gymnazo means to exercise so as to discipline oneself, to exercise vigorously in any way, either the body or the mind. It describes the rigorous, strenuous, self-sacrificing training that an athlete undergoes in order to prepare for the games. One commentator says that this picture is a terrible one. The word which is used for trained is the word which is used for an athlete exercising and training himself for the games. These people have actually trained and equipped and taught their minds and hearts to concentrate on nothing but their forbidden desires. They have deliberately fought with conscience until they have destroyed it. They have deliberately wrestled with God until they have thrown God out of their life. They have deliberately struggled with their finer feelings until they have strangled them. 
They have deliberately trained themselves to concentrate on forbidden things. Their lives have been a dreadful battle to destroy all virtue and to train themselves in the techniques of sin. And Peter understood that the actions of these men were not accidental. Their sin was premeditated rather than being a momentary lapse in judgment. Like dedicated athletes, these men exercised diligently to achieve their goal, and that is to be professionals in their pursuit of greed. And so after pointing out the fact that these false teachers were reckless, were self-pleasing, were arrogant, were unashamed, were lustful, were seductive, and were greedy, Peter then sums up what he has just said by calling these people accursed children. Literally, the term means children of the curse. As liars and hypocrites, they are persons that are devoted to the curse. And as a result of that, they will most certainly be destroyed. As the servants of Satan and the slaves of sin, the apostle Peter rightly denounces them as being the children of hell. Now to illustrate what he has said to this point, Peter concludes this section by comparing these false teachers to the prophet Balaam, the son of Beor, whose actions are recorded for us over in Numbers 22 through 24. Now in the interest of time, we can't go through those three chapters and go through the whole account dealing with this man. But uh, I want us to make a few observations relating to the point that Peter is making about these false teachers as it related to Balaam. The overarching similarity between Balaam and these false teachers is that all of them rejected the clear teaching of God's word. They refused to walk in obedience and instead chose to wander away in spite of the eternal circumstances that they were very much aware of. Like Balaam before them, these false teachers were guilty of, quote, forsaking the way. And as a result, he said that they have gone astray. The right way that Peter uses here is a metaphor that is used repeatedly back in the Old Testament. And it indicated a path or course that was in keeping with obedience to the clearly revealed Word of God. The act of forsaking that way indicated an act of deliberate rebellion against God himself. By doing this, these false teachers, Peter says, have followed the way of Balaam. Jude also compared the actions of these false teachers to those of Balaam when he says in verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. Balaam was a perfect example of a prophet who was motivated by financial gain. He was a cunning, self-seeking man who used his prophetic powers for the purpose of lining his own pocket. Scripture tells us that Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse 
the people of God as they wandered uh, throughout the wilderness because of the fact that he saw the Israelites as a threat to him and to his people and he hoped to defeat them and he hoped to defeat them with the help of Balaam. When you read the story of Balaam at the outset, he appears to be a very faithful prophet. Uh, He claims that he will not do or say anything unless God permits it, which is the character of any true prophet of God. Yet as the account unfolds, it becomes more and more apparent that Balaam was using stall tactics, if you will, to negotiate a higher payment for his prophetic services. And in the end, Scripture tells us that he never cursed Israel, but rather he wound up blessing her. However, in spite of that, it was clear that he was more than willing to greedily accept Balak's riches. And if God had not intervened on Israel's behalf, Balaam certainly would have willfully sinned against God for his own material gain or reward. And even though he claimed to speak only that which God wanted him to speak, the Lord knew his heart that he was willing to curse Israel in exchange for riches. And because of that greed, Balaam received a rebuke for his own transgression, Peter says. And that rebuke came from a very unlikely source. It came from a moot donkey that he was riding on. And the Lord miraculously enabled the animal to speak with the voice of a man. This interaction is found in Numbers 22, verses 22 through 35. And it was because of that conversation that Peter says the madness of the prophet was restrained. The term madness here literally means beside one's own mind. He's saying here that Balaam was a man who was beside his own mind. And as a result of the donkey speaking to him, his madness was restrained. In other words, Balaam was beside himself with greed. His love of material gain caused him to act in a matter that was completely irrational. Unfortunately, the story of Balaam doesn't end there. Uh, When his attempt to curse Israel failed, he tried to ruin them instead by means of moral corruption. And he used the influence that he had to encourage sexual immorality between the men of Israel and the daughters of Moab and Midian. And Moses specifically identifies Balaam as being the corrupting influence behind Israel's immorality and idolatry. He said, Behold these, meaning these pagan women, caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. The sin of Balaam, the son of Beor, not only was a blatant affront to the holiness of God, but it also carried with it dire consequences for the people of God. And even though he knew better, Balaam's choices were driven by his fleshly impulses, And in the end, he was slain with the sword by the very people that he sought to destroy. Well, having seen then in the first place the depraved nature of these false teachers, Peter goes on secondly to reveal to us their deceptive methods. 
the deceptive methods of false teachers. We find here in verses 17 through 19 that Peter tells his readers that false teachers use arrogant, empty words to entice by sensuality, promising freedom while they themselves are the slaves of corruption. He says in verse 17, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved." The appearance and teaching of these false teachers look and sound good on the surface. But in reality, Peter says, their teaching is void of substance and they provide no life-changing refreshment for those people who follow after them. Now, the false teacher is never going to actually come out and say that, but that's the reality. After all, they are all about deception. Peter here describes them as springs without water and mists that are driven by a storm. These evil men promise the things that they do not or cannot deliver to their hearers. They offer spiritually thirsty and parched souls nothing more than a false hope of relief. You can imagine wandering out in the desert you're parched with thirst, you're getting ready to die, and there in the distance you see an oasis. You see palm trees, you see green grass, and of course you assume that there are springs, that there's water there. And so you do everything you can to get there, but once you get there, the spring that's in the center of the oasis is dry as a bone. That's what happens to people who follow after these false teachers. Another example relates to a land that is in the grips of a long drought. Periodically, a heavy mist or a fog might blow in and cover the land, and it might give the appearance of those who inhabit that land that rain is to follow imminently. But once the sun rises, that little bit of moisture soon evaporates, and it leaves the land and the inhabitants of that land once again disappointed with no relief. That is what these false teachers are like. They are like dry springs and mists that provide no life-changing refreshment. They offer life. They speak of hope. They talk to their hearers of freedom. But those who are deceived by them experience, in the end, none of those things. Once again, Peter is quick here to speak of the terrible judgment that awaits these deceivers. He says that black darkness has been reserved for them, referring to hell, that place where fire and darkness exist together. But in spite of the fact that these false teachers have nothing of spiritual substance to offer, they claim to possess great wisdom and knowledge regarding spiritual matters. On the surface, these men sound really good. They may be flamboyant public speakers, and they may be masters of rhetoric, 
Peter says that they speak out, quote, arrogant words of vanity. They fool their followers into believing that they are deep theological scholars. They lead them to believe that they have profound spiritual insights, and maybe even these men pretend to believe that they have received direct revelations from God himself. And by these means, they, dabble, they dazzle their victims, but in reality, they say nothing that is truly from the Lord himself. Instead, Peter says, they use their empty speech to, quote, entice those who listen to them by fleshly desires, by sensuality. The desire of these men is not to herald the truth, but rather to target the fleshly desires of their hearers. They preach a carnal, feelings-oriented message that stimulate the sensual interests of people. If it feels good, it must be right. And so many are by these means deceived into following after these false teachers. Such people are in fact men and women who are trying to better themselves by means of moral resolution. These individuals no doubt are struggling with how to cope and deal with the many difficulties and trials of life that they face and they long for relief from their guilt, their stress, and their anxiety. They are dissatisfied as they consider the lives of those whom Peter describes as the ones who live in error, referring to the mass of unregenerate humanity. And as a result, they desire and seek after some better way, some religious experience that promises to grant them relief from their difficult circumstances. But in trying to improve their condition, they make themselves vulnerable by the wiles of these false teachers. As they look to such men for help, Peter says, they barely escape from the ones who live in error. It is to these people that false teachers promise their false version of freedom and hope, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. They promise to their hearers liberty and peace and freedom and purpose, even though they purpose, personally know nothing of these blessings. Peter says that they themselves are the slaves of corruption. The apostle then concludes with these words, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. These false teachers are so completely dominated and controlled by their sinful nature that their teaching is utterly void of divine power. They offer freedom, but in reality they themselves are the slaves of sin. They know nothing about true freedom because they themselves have rejected the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who is able to liberate the soul from the guilt, the punishment, and the power of sin. And so having seen then the depraved nature and the deceptive methods of these false teachers, let us briefly consider, uh, finally, the dreadful state of these false teachers. Peter concludes the chapter by talking about the dreadful state of these false teachers. 
He says that these men are worse off now than if they had never known the way of righteousness. He writes, beginning in verse 20, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. It would appear at least for a time that these false teachers genuinely desired to escape the corruption, the defilement, and the debauchery of the world around them. And in a sense, Peter indicates that they were successful. Peter says that they had, quote, escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word that's translated here, defilements, means an influence or atmosphere that tends to deplete or corrupt. The wicked, the wicked world system that exists around us just does just that, doesn't it? Depraved humanity is contaminated by the world's immorality and vanity. And some, even such as these men who in the end became false teachers, had at one time in their life sought to escape this corruption. And they did so, Peter says, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is, though, that this knowledge was not a saving knowledge of Christ, but rather it was an accurate awareness of him. That kind of knowledge did, for a time at least, result in a temporary moral reform of their lives. In his explanation of the parable of the sower, Jesus described such individuals as this over in Luke chapter 8, verse 14, where he said that the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Such people as this, Jesus says, have heard the word, and there appears for a while at least to be some growth taking place. But in time the plant withers and dies because the thorns that are around it, the cares of this life, the desire for pleasure, the desire for earthly gain, eventually impede nutrients from reaching the plant, and as a result its life is brought to an end, and it is incapable of producing any fruit that is mature. This is the divine explanation given by Christ himself of what happens to men such as these false teachers. Such people, though there were promising signs in the beginning, reveal that they were never really in Christ because of the fact that, as Peter says, they are again entangled in them. That is, they were again entangled of the defilements of the world and they are overcome. 
Genuine believers are identified by John in his first epistle and also in the book of Revelation as overcomers. Genuine believers are not people who have been overcome. And the reason why they have been overcome is because they were never truly saved. They were never the recipient of a truly regenerated heart. These people never possess the Spirit of God who enables the true believer to not only walk, but also to persevere and to grow in the faith. Thus in time, these people sink back into the pollution of the world. They completely reject the gospel that they once professed to believe. And in light of this, Peter says that the last state has become worse for them than the first. In other words, those who have come to understand the truth and immediately or ultimately turn away from it will face far greater judgment than those who have never heard it. In Mark 6, we have the account of Jesus sending his disciples out to preach repentance to the cities that were around them that they came to. And before he sent them, he said in verse 11, Whoever shall not receive you nor hear you, when you depart there, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for that city. Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, that everyone who has been given much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will be asked all the more. Because of this truth, Peter makes the statement that it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. For those who know the truth and turn from it, their judgment is going to be infinitely greater than those who have never heard it at all. Well, in a final portrayal of the dreadful state of these false teachers, Peter describes their condition by using two very graphic images from the animal world, both of which were very contemptible and they were disgusting to the Jewish people. He said that it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Now in biblical times, especially in Jewish culture, dogs were not a normal family pet. Uh, not like they are today anyway. They were often dirty, they were diseased, and at times they could be very dangerous. They typically lived on household scraps that were thrown out in the garbage. And when that means of food was in short supply, they resorted, as Peter says here, to eating their own vomit. It was not surprising then that Jewish people treated these animals with utter contempt. At the same time, pigs represented to the Jewish people the ultimate in filthiness and uncleanness. And that was mainly due to the fact that the Mosaic law specifically declared these animals to be ceremonially unclean. But Peter's purpose in comparing the state of false teacher teachers to that of a dog returning to its vomit and a cleaned up pig returning to wallowing in the mud is very clear. 
False teachers are the embodiment of spiritual impurity and depravity. Peter's warning here in the passage before us is very clear as the people of God. And that is, brethren, that we are to be on guard, that we are to expose, and that we are to stay away from those individuals who would come in among us seeking to pervert the truth and lead some astray. Well, may God help us to heed the warnings that are given here that we might be on guard for false teachers and that God, by his grace, would help us to not only expose them, but also to stay away from them. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, this is a difficult passage for us to read, yet again you have a purpose in giving it. And that purpose is for us to be on guard, to watch out for such individuals. We pray your grace to help us to expose such individuals if they would come in among us. And Lord, we pray also that we might defend ourselves against this type of false teaching, that we would bathe ourselves in your word, that we would study it, that we would memorize it, that we would be students of it, that we would love it, and as a result of that, that we would hate anything that would be contrary to what you've said. Lord, we pray that you would grant us grace to that end. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, in the 15 or 20 minutes that we have together for discussion, they're dismissed to your various groups.